Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining today. I'm really excited to share the information that I've collated, collected, and sewed together. This is, uh, is life-changing. This is, this is the real deal, and it can upgrade and enhance your life and my life. One little proviso. <laughs> it's not easy. There's nothing easy about what we are going to study today, but the good news is it is eminently possible. We can achieve this if we work really hard. With no further ado, today's very special class, Sea of Tranquility, has been very generously dedicated by our dear show member, Lisa White. And she does so to commemorate her father's yard site, Menasha Ben Aryeleib. May his neshama have an aliyah, and may all of us be able to share simchas, happy, positive, and good occasions together. Okay, let's take it away. Yesterday we learned that speaking of benefits or fringe benefits, that there's something enormously beneficial enormously beneficial to be achieved by creating or nurturing or developing or having this thing called bitachan, trust, insofar as your Yiddishkeit, your spiritual pursuit is concerned, that would refer to things like prayer, Torah study, and perhaps even the way we treat others, especially as the Marpila Nefesh termed it, the notion of Inyan HaTorah refers to Lelech Bederach HaTorah, to go in the pathway of Torah. So it'll be enormously beneficial for you to walk in the pathway of Torah and succeed in achieving spiritual fulfillment if you have Betochen. Why? Yesterday we talked about this notion that that seems almost counterintuitive. And I think we came to an understanding of why it wasn't counterintuitive. But the Shara B'tochen said that the first benefit is menuchas nafshei u'betchoinai. You're tranquil. You have peace of mind. After all, betchoinai, your security, yazevel alakov, as the Neder B'kader said, you leave that in Hashem's hands. And we spoke about this chiyuv, this obligation that a servant might have, in fact would have, to rely on the instructions or orders that he or she got from their master. Chayiv levtoyach. And I disagreed with the English translation yesterday, and I, I stand by that. And I want to re-emphasize that in the commentary, Neda Bakreda, she says, the reason that you're obligated to, to place your trust. So there's this emphasis on chayav, on an obligation. We're obligated to place our betochen, our trust in Hashem. What does that mean? What does it mean we're obligated to place our betochen? In the metaphor of the parable, if you remember, the servant 
is not supposed to be second-guessing the orders that he got. The construction worker is not looking at the blueprints and saying, well, you know, I'm not sure. This doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't jibe with my understanding of this project, so I don't think I'm going to be cutting or cementing or drilling as the plans indicate. That would be a very bad idea. <laughs> the right idea is you have plans. There's a team of professionals who worked on creating these plans, expert engineers and architects. Your job is to follow the plans. I'm a simple servant. As a simple servant, there is no credible logic to me questioning the orders I received. That's a recipe for disaster. And so, we shouldn't be questioning Hashem. We should rely on Hashem. Okay, my friends, here's what I don't really understand. I'm not going to create or blaze my own path in spiritual pursuit. I'm not going to question the value or virtue of a particular mitzvah. I'm going to take it at face value. If Hashem asked you and me to do something, He knows best. And in that sense, if I have to trust that Hashem knows best, even when I don't understand the circumstances, I can appreciate the metaphor evoked by the Shara Betachem. But living in a sea of tranquility? Seriously? Let me further explain. Suppose a person doesn't feel like sitting Shiva. We still know it's a good idea. Person says, nah, this doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. I need to celebrate my parents' life. I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't be miserable. It doesn't work for me. We would say, you might not know what works for you. It's a Torah concept. It works for everybody. It has to work for everybody. It'll work for you too. Or somebody who doesn't have a Shiva because, for example, their close, close relative passed on Erev Yom Tov. And the burial took place on that very day, as it should. And they sat Shiva for maybe an hour or two. And then the Yom Tov arrived. The halacha is that we don't sit Shiva. And the person says, no, no, I, I need to sit Shiva. To which I have actually responded to people who ask this question. We need to accept on faith that Hashem knows what's best for us. I empathize. My heart breaks. I understand that you feel you need this shiva period. I get it. Don't you think Hashem knows what you need? Don't you think Hashem knows what Jewish law ordains? So we're going to have to accept it on faith that if Hashem gave you this challenge, yes, you can succeed at it. A person might have a nisayon, a test, and say, you know what? Rabbeinu Shalelam, Almighty God, I can't take it. You've given me too daunting, too difficult, I'm done. Uh, believing you can't say that. Chayev liftoyach ala We must rely, trust our master. Okay, I get that. What I don't understand is, Rabbeinu Bechaya said the benefit of this trusting attitude is going to be menuchas nafshay. 
then I'm going to be tranquil. I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be relaxed. But how can I be relaxed if I don't know what tomorrow brings? I mean, seriously, I don't know what tomorrow brings. Today I have food. I don't know if I'll have food tomorrow. How can I be relaxed? <laughs> I don't need to remind you of all the worries and anxieties that you might be having right now, but people have worries and anxieties. You know, if anything has been taught to us over the last year or so, it's that nothing is a given. People who were secure, they took out huge mortgages, built, bought these large buildings, and they were getting rent. It's downtown. I mean, like, it's not, it's inconceivable that you can't be able to rent these spaces. And all of a sudden, COVID hits. And people are working from home. And we're still in lockdown, but in most parts of the world, people have moved on. Many of them did not come back to the office. It's actually beneficial for the businesses to downsize, not use the office space, and instead you rent one of these temporary offices for an occasional meeting. A sea shift in what we call the way business is being done. So you were so sure, and it wasn't so sure all of a sudden. All of a sudden, the rent isn't there and you can't pay the mortgages. We got a problem. Somebody could have invested a lot of money and purchased a license to operate a, a car service. And then all of a sudden, something named Uber came along and Lyft and half a dozen other online platforms. And all of a sudden, the car service is scrambling to be able to pay its bills. These are just silly examples. But I don't have to remind you what you're anxious about. M most of us are already anxious. We live with lots and lots of stress and anxiety and fears and uncertainties. Can anybody tell you that tomorrow's gonna be good? Can anybody tell you that things are gonna be fantastic? Seriously. Oh, I trust, I trust it's gonna be great. That sounds to me like a delusion or an illusion, cold comfort. Why would that make you feel any better if you convinced yourself it's going to be fine? Yes, I have betochen. I have emunah. I have faith that Hashem is doing exactly what I need Him to do, even though I don't understand it. And dear God, please don't test me. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Every morning I recite my brachas and we ask, Please do not tempt or test us. I don't think I have the gumption, the courage, the fortitude, the strength. Please, Hashem, don't test me. And sometimes He chooses to test us. And then we must believe it's for the best. Okay, I can understand that we must accept what Hashem does. But how could I be calm? How could I be certain? How could I be relaxed and tranquil? being assured that things will go well for me, when in fact, maybe they won't. And every day there are people who wake up in the morning and that day seems just fine, chipper, just like the day before. And in a moment, everything changes. I mean, what is Rabbeinu B'chayah talking about when he says, oh, you can study Torah, you can pray with great fervor. You don't have to worry because all your anxieties are gone. 
because you have betochen. Because you trust that Hashem is going to do what's good for you in an overt way. I'm not talking about on cloud nine in some kind of theoretical spiritual plane. Factually, actually, it's going to be great. Really. How do you know? How do you know? How can, how can anybody be certain? How can betochen give anybody real peace of mind? This is a big question. Clearly, Rabbeinu Bachaya knew something. That at this point, he is not communicating with us. Now, some of the things that we will learn later in the Shara B'Tochen will help us to understand how Rabbeinu B'chayah was so sure of himself when he said these words. But we can't wait. And there's lots, lots more than what he actually speaks about here. So Rabbeinu B'chayah is going to tell us how we can get to that B'Tochen. He is going to give us a strategy. But for starters, here in our Pesach Hashar, as we enter the threshold of this gate, we need to understand the notion of the Menuchas HaNefesh, the sea of tranquility that we're supposed to be living in, based on Betochen. Let me begin by sharing with you the remarkable words of the fourth Rebbe of Lubavitch, the Rebbe Maharash. It's a rather short Hasidic discourse from the year 1861, 66, pardon me. Really, just the first few months, or maybe month or two, after the Rebbe Maharash had succeeded his illustrious father, the Tzemach Tzedek. It's the time of the Industrial Revolution, People who had made a living for generations driving or providing coach, you know, horse and buggy transportation were suddenly knocked out of the water with the arrival of the trains. And Imperial Russia was one of the countries that embraced the trains more than any other. The story of the Tsar's railroad or the railway that crossed the entirety of Imperial Russia is a legend. Some of the major innovations in locomotive travel were developed in Imperial Russia. Many people had Parnassa problems. There was a lot of anxiety in the Hasidic community at the time. And as Hasidim are wont to do, many of these people petitioned the Rebbe, Rebbe, do something. And there's even a, a ridiculous ballad in Yiddish in which it documents the Hasidim asking the Rebbe to get rid of the trains. Their faith in the Rebbe was so powerful, they say, they're asking Hashem that we're going we're to go to the Rebbe and the Rebbe will ask God to smack down the trains. There's this iron monster, Hakimab Dezaitin, Rabbeinu Shalelu, Master of the Universe, knock his sides off. <laughs> There's like this Yiddish description of this monster train. Water is being released beneath steam pumps from on high. The middle is filled with fire. Just get rid of this monster so we could go back to making a living. The Mimer is, is um, 
based on a Mishnah. A Mishnah which is recited actually quite copiously by Torah Jews during the course of the weeks of Pesach and Shavuot and in many communities across the summer before we begin to recite a chapter of Mesechet Avot on a weekly basis on Shabbat afternoon. And the, the Mishnah says, Kol Yisrael yesh lohem chelik lo'ilam haba. It's a Mishnah from Mesechet Sanhedrin, the 10th chapter. It says, all of the Jewish people, all of Israel has a portion of the world to come. Oh, really? All of Israel? <laughs> you like everybody is so righteous, eh? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Mishnah says, Shenemar, because it's written. And here's a quote from Isaiah. Ve'amech kulam tzadikim. All of your nation, they're all righteous. And therefore, Yeshua Aretz, they're going to inherit the proverbial land, not a land of soil, but Olam Haba. The world to come. And there's a lot of discussion about this, whether it means the Garden of Eden or Paradise, where Neshamot was souls go after the terrestrial journey, or if it actually refers to the notion of eternity. So the Rebbe Maharash asks a simple question. All of Israel are righteous? Everybody is a tzaddik? Seriously? Then besides the obvious question that we might all have, some of us even being honest, I'm a tzaddik. He says, our sages said, Hashem took note of the fact that there'd be very few real tzaddikim. So he planted them. Could even be one tzaddik in a generation. Everybody's a tzaddik? Or it's a rarity? Which one? And the Mimer goes on to address this notion of why do we call a person who does mitzvahs a tzaddik altogether? Tzaddik is a term that's used in the judicial context. It means somebody is meritorious in judgment. You're either, you come out found wanting or guilty or exonerated. That's really what tzaddik means. So why would a righteous person be called tzaddik, which doesn't really mean righteous, at least not in the Hebraic sense. And the Rebbe develops this notion, he asks the question, why are all mitzvot called tzedakah, which is from that same noun, that same root word. And he develops this idea that really all spiritual pursuit is charitable in nature. That which is charitable or righteous in nature is to provide for one who doesn't have. And he says, our world, which is deprived of the presence of Hashem, is made brighter. The atmosphere is made a little bit thinner through the performance of mitzvot. Mitzvot in which we express kindness, care, concern, and sensitivity for another human being, but also mitzvot between us and between God. We're actually making a contribution of sorts. It's like putting money in your RSP. You know, Canadians do that all the time. They have a retirement savings plan and they can put money away and it's a tax shelter. You know, see the RSP, you know, benefit from the RSP. Not everybody makes it to be able to use the RSP, but people want to have it. And here, <laughs> the RSP you're making a contribution to is necessarily something that will come home to you. 
but not just you. Because every mitzvah dents the darkness and makes our world a godlier place. It brings Hashem's presence into our reality. And when Mashiach comes, the trillions and trillions of points of light will suddenly all snap into order. Like an electromagnet, it'll just like a magnet snaps things and all of a sudden the lights will be on and everything will be different as a result of the mitzvah we do. And so the Rebbe develops this idea that tzaddik means to do things which are proverbially speaking good. Okay, so we're making a contribution. And then he questions the notion of everybody being a tzaddik or very few people being a tzaddik and he quotes a Zohar which talks about the mitzvah of Brit Milah, freely mistranslated as circumcision. And he says it's framed in two ways. One way is applicable to just about everybody. The other way is applicable to very, very few people. And he maintains that ultimately the notion of tzaddik as it's applicable universally to everybody is real. It's real. Okay, so if everybody's a tzaddik, that's great. So what's the bad news? Let's uh, pop out the champagne and celebrate. We're all tzaddikim. Says the Rebbe, v'imkein yishlahovin. If so, King David says in Psalm 55, l'yitein le'olam moit la'tzaddik. Hashem never allows the tzaddik to falter. As if to say that the righteous will always be sustained. And he says, That refers to all of the Jewish people. David HaMelech, King David, chanted, sang, recited. He wove these words, Ba'ad Klolius Neshamas Yisrael, on behalf of the souls of Israel. And so we're all supposed to have Parnassah. Something isn't adding up. And in another manuscript it says, Dachuk means things aren't really good. You're pushed. You're scraping by. Just barely. So people aren't actually making a living. So many people. And here we have this promise in the book of Psalms. Hashem says, I, everybody will take care of. Everybody will make a living. Everybody will have sustenance. He didn't say everybody will be a multimillionaire. He didn't say everybody will drive a Corvette. He didn't say everybody will have a private swimming pool. He didn't even say that you'll be wearing 16 pairs of shoes. He said you'll have your basic needs met. Everybody will have their basic needs met. Median above the poverty line. That's basic. And that goes for everybody. Well, if so, how does this beautiful idea jibe with the ugly truth? The ugly truth that so many people are living beneath the poverty line. And people weren't and aren't, unfortunately, making a living. And this was a real challenge in the Rebbe Marash's time in 1866 in the midst of the Cultural Revolution and things that people had done to sustain themselves for generations suddenly dried up overnight. 
<laughs> we've gotten used to these industry changes. Now in the, in the uh, computer age, everything seems to change every 10 years. But 150 years ago, things didn't change very often. In order for things to shift a change, centuries would sometimes have to go by. And then the Industrial Revolution happens and it's been accelerating ever since. We get more change in a few months than they once got in a few decades. And the Rebbe Marash says something absolutely astounding. He says the answer is not that this tzaddik is talking about the rare, few, or exceptional tzaddikim. It is referring to all of Am Yisrael. Then, then why isn't it that way? And he says that's because lehi yois. Because our trust, our certainty, our reliance on Hashem isn't the way it should be. It says in the same collection of verses, Cast your aspiration, your hope on Hashem. Pin it on Him. It's His problem. He's going to take care of it. But instead, people believe that it's their own business acumen, their own machination, if you will, that's actually manufacturing Parnassa for them. And because people believe that, and because people have these twisted ideas, he says, that they're making the magic happen, they're actually, they're actually locking themselves out of the Parnassa that's due to them. But if you would actually trust Hashem, sound familiar? If you'd have that peace of mind, to focus on your spiritual pursuit without anxieties, calm, knowing that Hashem will for sure provide, because He promised He will. He would. You would necessarily receive the Parnassah. That is yours for the taking. Just like that. If this is starting to turn your head and drive you crazy, listen to this. Chafav, the 20th day of Av, the Hilula of the Rebbe's saintly father, 1953, fell on a Shabbos. It was an amazing fabringen on Parshas Ekev, that, that Shabbos. And we're going to come back to this remarkable fabringen because the Rebbe spoke about the Tochen in a number of different ways. But the Rebbe, at some point, towards the end of the, of the fabringen, the Rebbe says, he talks about this mimer, a very unusual mimer from 1866. And he says that the Rebbe Marash says clearly that the reason that people are not getting the parnosa that is due to them is because they don't have, they don't have betochen. And he says, because of that, You're stopping the flow of sustenance. And the Rebbe gave a very interesting metaphor, which I'm going to update for you in a minute. 
So that it's like turning the faucet off. It isn't as if there's no water coming through that faucet. You turn the faucet off. The pipe is live. It's attached. The water's there. Everybody's got water. Well, but I don't have any water. Turn the faucet on. Simple as that. In modern sense, the Wi-Fi is working. Just get the code. Once you put the code in, like, everything's fine. The download will begin. The, the broadcast begins to stream. You just, need, you just need the code. Simple as that, eh? Really? <laughs> Sim simple as that? What, you just have Parnassa and magic? I mean, I'm sorry, you have Betochen, you have trust in Hashem, and by magic your Parnassa suddenly appears? Well, it's not exactly like that. The Rebbe Marash says, you have to do your work, of course. Hashem said you have to do work. But the question is what you're relying on. Do you rely on Hashem or do you rely on you? We'll talk about that more in a couple of episodes with Invincible Me. Some people think, hey, I can do this. I am invincible. I have the acumen, the smarts. I have the ambition. I'm going to make this happen. Said many a foolish person. Only to find out that that might be a path of folly. But at any rate, the point that's being made here very clearly is that betochen somehow will give you access to Hashem's blessings and you need not worry. No, let me rephrase that. He doesn't say you need not worry. He says you must not worry. You need to place your trust in Hashem and the goodness will flow. How does that work? How can I be sure? What if I'm not deserving? What if I'm not such a tzaddik? How can I be certain that as long as I'm certain, everything is going to be fine? We're going to spend the rest of today trying to understand what exactly betochen means insofar as how is it magically able to unlock the keys for Hashem's blessings? How can we be so sure? Our next stop will be an excerpt of an edited talk from the Rebbe. This is found in Lakuta Sichas in Chelek Lamed Vav. The Rebbe speaks about Betochen. In fact, he sets out to explain the words that the third Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, said to somebody who had some very serious worries, a relative who was really, really ill, and he came to the Rebbe and said, Rebbe, please, I need you to, to pray. I, I don't know, my prayers aren't very impressive. Atzandek's prayers, which isn't inaccurate. The Gemara says very clearly that Misha Yeshlo Chola Babayat, if you have somebody sick in the house, Yelech Eitzel Talmud Chacham. You go to a Talmud Chacham. And in plain English, it's not a good idea to go to court and represent yourself. Hire yourself a good lawyer. So that Tzemach Tzedek, who had prayed for and blessed thousands of people, turns around to this fellow and he says, you can do this. He says, no, 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 Rabbi, I, <laughs> I came to you. And the Rebbe said, Tracht gut, wird sein gut. You'll think good, 
and it'll be good. Which some think means positive thinking or some other pop culture mumbo-jumbo. It does not mean that. Definitely not. It's not about the power, quote-unquote, of positive thinking. What is it about? How does it work? There's an amazing documented story. It's on video of a fellow who got terrible news that his father had a very serious heart attack. He was living in Israel, the father and mother, and this is an Israeli boy, and he's studying in yeshiva in New York. It's not like today when you could be text messaging or WhatsApping. He got like some telephone, a telegraph message. Very bad situation. And he writes a note off to the Rebbe. This is in the early 50s. He wrote to the Rebbe that I received such and such a news, and he wrote, Eneni yedea malachshev. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to think. So the Rebbe writes him back, don't know what to think? Our Rebbe has told us, tracht gut, gut. Think good, it will be good. And he gets this answer from the Rebbe, and he's like, okay, he's got he's to think good. The Rebbe told him to think good. So he starts to work on himself, to force himself to think good. And there's an amazing turnaround. His father recovers. It's a borderline miracle. And when he comes back to report to the Rebbe a few days later that the situation had entirely rotated itself, the Rebbe asked him, When did you start thinking good? Can you imagine? In other words, this, there's some kind of mystical power attached to those thoughts, but, but what does that mean? What does it mean, think good? Is there virtue or value to make-believe? Put yourself in a delusion and it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Mumbo-jumbo? Really? Is, is that what Judaism espouses or believes in? It's a fair question, eh? Lucky for us, the Rebbe actually explain this in detail. And it's even edited. And I'll quote from the Hebrew and translate. Choivas habetochen. And I want to underline and emphasize the word chov. Chov means an obligation. Obligations are never easy. Meeting your obligations are always challenging. Let's make it clear. There's nothing easy about what we're about to describe. It's obligatory. It's difficult. It's challenging. But at the same time, if it's a chov, if it's a burden or obligation that the Torah places upon us, as we discussed in previous episodes, we have to be certain. We have to believe that we have the power to do this. Otherwise, Hashem would never, ever ask us to do something we couldn't do. That would just be unreasonable, unfair, and God is neither. So it's the chovah of bitochen, which we're commanded. I want to emphasize that word. Go back a couple of episodes ago about the virtue of it being a command. Einorak prat. It's not just a detail, a tributary that flows from the notion of emuna, of faith. And the faith Faith, everything's in heaven's hands, so to speak. God is gracious and compassionate. That's what we say. So therefore, if God is gracious and compassionate, then it must be 
that if God is gracious and compassionate, and I believe that he's gracious and compassionate, that probably he'll be gracious and compassionate, and everything will be good, says who? The Rebbe says, Bitochen is actually not merely something ancillary to, ancillary to faith. It's not an add-on. It's not a codicil to faith. This obligation, it's an effort or an art unto itself. What is it? How do you define it? That a person says, I will rely on Hashem. You know when you have a, a big event, something that requires a lot of coordination, and you're like in five places, or maybe heads in ten places, so you have anxiety and you're worried, so you hire a, a planner an executive director, a party planner, an event coordinator. And then you say, I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be calm. Say you're making a wedding. Remember those things before COVID? And, and you have guests and family. and You have a lot of things on your mind. So I can't be worried about the details. I need to know that somebody's taking care of this and that I can be calm. I remember once coming to a wedding, the family was very nervous about the chuppah. And I said, uh, relax, guys. I've done this uh, over a hundred times. It's, it's going to be fine. Just relax. I'm not a newbie. I'm not a novice. I know how to officiate. I know how to... Could you guys please just calm down and enjoy the wedding? And I remember the father of the bride said to me, he said to me, okay, okay, you've calmed me down. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to try to focus on enjoying. I'm, I'm relying on you, Rabbi. I said, no problem. With Hashem's help, I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> with God's help, no problem. And I do get a little nervous before I officiate the wedding, not because I have stage fright, because it's a big responsibility. And I just want to be sure I do it right. And it's, you know, I'm a little nervous doing Hashem's work. But in seriousness, when, you, when you're able to rely on somebody, you can kind of offload your anxiety. That's betochen. Stop being anxious. Place it in Hashem's hands. Yashlich kol goyroli biyad Hashem. Your lot. Throw it into God's hands. Let Him worry. Kamesha Kosov. As it says, and this is the very verse we just quoted before, Hashlich al Hashem Cast your aspiration, your concern, cast it on Hashem. And the Rebbe goes on to say something absolutely astounding. Later on, this is on page four, this is on, now I'm talking about page five, column A. The Rebbe says, The foundation upon which a person builds his trust is this notion that God will do good for you a good that is overt and obvious a good that does not require a leap of faith to categorize it as such. It does 
does not mean when we define betochen shamaimin that the believer because chazde Hashem dida because Hashem's mercy is kindness is endless. Leroy to the one who is deserving and the one who is not deserving of God's beneficence. Therefore, I'm going to be able to live off the gravy train. Why not? Because God is good. Not because I'm good. I don't deserve it. But God is good. He just gives everybody. Like the candy man and the you know, doesn't Good kids, bad kids. A kid is a kid. I'm Hashem's child. So I'm a little errant. A little bit of a troublemaker. Hashem gives all, He's going to give us all candies. Rebbe says wrong. That's not betachen. Listen to me carefully, my friends. Because we are now starting to Uncover an important secret. Betochen who avoida v'yegia benafshay. Betochen trust is something that requires tremendous effort and toil, insofar as your soul is concerned. It's not organic, easy, or natural. V'hi, and that effort, the effort to actually push the anxiety away. To force yourself to be calm, collected, and immersed in a sea of tranquility because you know Hashem is going to provide, because you're convinced, because you left it in Hashem's hands. He nevia eschaste Hashem. That act of faith, that readiness to literally banish anxiety from your radar screen, that's not easy. If you can get a grip on yourself, and you can literally and actually leave it in God's hands, that brings His blessings. That unlocks, that's the code. You know, I was thinking, this is not a faucet like, you know, one of these touch faucets, or it's an easy twist. Some of you don't even remember what a twist faucet used to look like. This is like a, one of those faucets that you need a like a like a, like a machine a pliers to open up a wrench that's the kind of faucet you know like sometimes you have these industrial faucets and you need to have something a real tool with a vice grip to open it up that's what we're talking about you need to know the code and the code the key the wrench that's this that's this toil. This toil. And when you toil and when you work hard at reassuring yourself with faith that Hashem is going to do good, then through this it awakens and stirs Hashem's mercy, and that is Zu Gufa Poelet Shakodishborhu Tinaheg Imo Baofenza it actually causes Hashem to give you those blessings. In other words, the Parnassah is there. Hashem has no limits. But in order for you to earn that, you need to do something exceptional. The Rebbe says, if you take a look in the Yalkut Shimoni, a very, very early Midrashic compilation, taking us back to the 12th century. The Yalkut Shimoni, and there's a cross-reference to the Medrash Shochatov, which says something similar. The Yalkut Shimoni says, At a time when we, Am Yisrael, is entering into a difficult, a painful, a challenging period. 
They say to God, please redeem us. Then HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Are you people who are living respectfully? Do you have a sense of awe and reverence for Hashem? And uh, you know, in the days of Moses and Joshua and King David, maybe Samuel, maybe they had that, we don't know. I don't know if we have Yerushalayim. Oimerlem Hashem says to them, Bitchu bishmi, then trust in my name. Vuhu oimidlachem, vuhu, and it, the betochen, will stand by in your stead. Shanema yivtach b'ashem. Veloma, why? Why does trust, so to speak, bring forth the redemption, the salvation, the things we're looking for from Hashem? Says the Al-Kochimoni, Shekomi sheboteach bishmi, Hashem says, if you put your trust in me, animatzilu, then I'm going to save him. You see what I'm saying? If you really trust Hashem, and that's not easy at all, but if you can do that, you earn Hashem's blessing. That's what we're talking about here. Now, this leads us to, a, I think, a very interesting place. Very interesting place. There's a fascinating dissertation from the Khatam Sofer. He was the leader of the Austro-Hungarian Jewry end of the 18th century. Into the 19th century, into the... Uh, into the 17th, into the 18th. No, getting that wrong. 18th into 19th. And this is a drasha, a sermon that he delivered on a Parshas Vayikra. The year, to be precise, was 1802. It's entitled, Tranquility of Soul, and trust in God. So it goes like this. He says, there's a verse in the beginning of Leviticus that speaks about a meal offering, an offering of flour, a dough. And it says, Kol ha-mincha asher takrivu Hashem. Any mincha, any meal offering that you bring to Hashem, you don't make it of leaven, and you don't make it with artificial sweetener, with nectar. Don't use alien agents to try to trigger or cause fermentation, and don't use nectar to artificially sweeten. So the Chassam Sofer said, you know, mincha. Trust in Hashem can be equated, framed with the terminology mincha. Mincha, as most people know it today, is the afternoon service. And that's a good question. Why does the afternoon service get the name mincha? But not for now. A mincha, biblically speaking, refers to a meal offering. I'm loath to use the Greek word sacrifice, because it doesn't really reflect the essence of a korban. A korban is about kiruv, it's about closeness to Hashem, although there is a sacrificial element to it. 
There's animal offerings, sheep, goats, and cattle. And then there's offering that comes from grain. Animal offerings in the Beit HaMikdash are called korbanot. And grain-based offerings are called minachot, or a mincha. So the Chatam Sofer draws some kind of line between the notion of a mincha, a meal offering, and between the notion of trust in Hashem. Because Rabbeinu Bechaya Bar Yosef Ibn Bekuda says, Menucha snafshei ubitchoinoi alelikov. Peace of mind, tranquility of soul, and trust or reliance on God. So he says, the word menucha, which means tranquility or peace, is not mutually exclusive from the term mincha, spelled exactly the same way, which in the Torah means a meal offering. The Chatam Sofer went on to say, this means that when a person casts his anxiety aside, when he places his reliance, his trust in Hashem, it's like a korban mincha. And therefore it has to be done right. can't be done with arrogance. can't be done with the notion of the fermentation called chimutz, which you know, has little air pockets and it kind of rises like sometimes arrogance does, on nothing, on vanity, on, on air. That's not the way you have betachen and Hashem. I'm fantastic, I, uh, and I, I'll trust you, God. And not with a sense of saccharine, false sweetness. But when a yid has sincere betachen, that's like a korban mincha. And he says that betachen, That's a major offering before Hashem. My understanding of the Chatam Sofer is that when we have betochen, we're actually bringing a korban, an offering before Hashem. You know, my friends, we can't bring korbanot. We can't bring offerings. We don't have a Beit HaMikdash. The Zohar says, Raza de korbana ole raza de sof. The power that is encoded into the notion of these offerings as they are described in the book of Leviticus and beyond, is able to stir, if you will, or bring forth a profusion of divine blessing from the very essence of divinity. It's a powerful thing. There's a reason that the Torah spends so much time talking about karbanot, and yet, in today's day and age, we aren't able to bring a karban. We try to engage in our prayers in a more passionate way, in a more meaningful way, so that they, they might be in the image of a prayer. But the Chatam Sofer seems to say that Betochen Hashem is a Korban Mincha. Maybe that's what the Rebbe means when he says, this is a very powerful Avoida. It's a big deal. So I got thinking, okay, it's a Mincha. It's a Mincha. Like, what is that? How does that work? Like, why is Betochen a Mincha? just because there's tranquility that comes along with betachen, nuchas ha-nefesh? What's like the, the deeper meaning of that? So let me take in a little journey that, that I've been on. And my little journey went off to a comment of Nachmanides, Ramban, 
Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, in his famed commentary on the Chumash. This is found in the first chapter of Leviticus, verse 9. He talks about Maimonides' reasonings, and he's not very happy with it. But without going into that, he says, I'm comfortable with the idea that has been elaborated on, shared by our sages. We know this uh, to be from Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, who precedes Ramban, talks about this. And I'll share with you the gist of Ramban's Nachmanides' commentary. He says, when a person behaves, behavior, as a rule, incorporates three dimensions. There's thought, because even though sometimes people behave thoughtlessly, there's still some thought invested. They have to have thought about what they're doing. It may not have been thought through, but there's always consciousness that precedes an action. Invariably, there's the level of engagement which we could equate with communication, even if he didn't say anything. And then there's the action taken. Think of it as the epicenter of consciousness radiate out, and it radiates out into the realm of how I would communicate or relate to others, and then finally radiates out into the extreme outer orbit of a person's, shall we say, functionality or being, actions taken. So Nachmanides Ramban says, when a person committed a sin, he needs now to slay the dragons or the demons that he created through sin. And therefore, the act of a korban, which serves as a, a, a mechanism to vaporize or cleanse the negative energy engendered through sin, necessarily has to have action and something corresponding to thought and something corresponding to communication. So he says, well, on the action level, the people would actually lean. They would lean their hands. It's called smicha. They would lean their hands on the animal. Like kind of, you know, get up close. Before that animal gets offered in your stead, feel it. I'm not drawing a chas v'shalom, a direct link, but when you do kaparot on Erev Yom Kippur and, and you hold that chicken, and you, you know, I'm trying to be nice to my chicken. I don't want to hurt him. I hold him. You feel the chicken drawing a breath and exhaling, and you feel the chickens throbbing with life, and you know a moment later, the chicken isn't. It's, uh, it's jarring. It makes you realize how tenuous life is, which is, by and large, why we do kaparot. So you lean on the animal as if you're relying on the animal, as if somehow the animal is doing something for you. And then you have to verbalize, confess your sin. That's speech. And then, says Nachmanides, there's the thought that accompanies, the thought that accompanies a korban. For the person, for the sinner, for whom the korban is being brought. Nachmanides says that the incineration, the burning of the korban, if you will, the the loss of the animal's life and it's being consumed in fire is supposed to make you stop and think. You see the limbs of the animal going up in fire and that reminds you of your own limbs with which you did inappropriate things. The blood is dashed in the mezbech and that represents life itself. As we say, hadam huanefesh. Plasma is what keeps us all going. 
So when a person sees all of this happening, he should think. He should think that the innards of the animal that are being burnt represents your inner thoughts. That the limbs of the animal being burnt represent the actions you take. That the blood of the animal represents your very life. And he should think that this person has sinned or rebelled against Hashem in a bodily sense and really in a sense of soul or consciousness. You deserve not to be alive anymore. You were created with a purpose. You, you violated the purpose of your being. You've abandoned the mission upon which you were sent. Your body should be burnt. Lulei chesed habayra, save the kindness, the graciousness of God. Shalakach mimenu tmura. Hashem says, you know what? The animal will be a korban, and you will go on to live a happy life. Now, I know there's a lot of baggage that comes along with this idea, and it's really, this is not the place for us to discuss the notion of offerings and animal offerings. That's not what this class is about. The reason that I'm sharing this with you is, Clearly, clearly, there's this idea of the korban in a figurative sense, as we'll see in a moment. Ramban goes on to talk about the, the monos, the portion of the korban that is given to the kohen, and he says, that's so that more Torah, so that the teachers of righteousness will pray on our behalf. So you're giving them, so to speak, providing for them so that they will pray on your behalf. There's a very, very interesting sikha from the Rebbe, which is found in Lakuta Sikha Shelik Gimel. The Rebbe quotes this Ramban. And the Rebbe says, so what does, what does, I understand the blood represents life itself and the korban goes to its death and in a way replaces me. But what is the business of burning the, the fat? It says, kol chelev. And the Rebbe says, the chelev represents tanog, represents the notion of pleasure. And he alludes to a statement that the Talmud makes a Mesechet Gitten, which speaks about a person who was feeling good and experienced a thickening of, of the, his corporeal reality. And then the advice to be able to get out of his shoe was think about something that makes you contrite or sad or upset. And then there's a shrinkage that takes place. So anyway, the point is that pleasure is expansive. Chelev, the fats are expansive, that represents pleasure. And this is, this is the idea. The korban is an act of devotion and dedication as if to say that the tainug and the gishmak, that the pleasure, that the luxuriating that life has to offer should be devoted or focused towards spiritual pursuit in Hashem. We should take pleasure in the study of Torah. We should take pleasure in doing somebody a favor. Not in self-indulgence with the attainment of our own satisfaction and libido. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about all this. I'm saying, okay, so, so what is the meal offering? There's no blood, there's no guts, there's no fat. What's that about? What kind of korban is that? Now listen to this. Hashem guides me. Stroke of Ashgachopratis. This very morning, I'm studying a, a mimer from Lakutatayra, from the Alta Rebbe, Parsha Shlach. And the Alter Rebbe is talking about offerings. And he says that the soilus, that the flower of the meal offering is Bechinas Hadas. It represents attitude. 
the way I look at things, the way I, the way I uh, see the pers my perspective on life. Why is flower related to dot? Simple, he says. Our sages tell us, and this is found in the Gemara and Brachas on page 40, a child cannot call out Abba, Papa, Father, until he is toyim tam dogan, until he begins to eat his first solids or cereals. What does this mean? It means that the child's mind doesn't fully develop until it's stimulated through the eating of complex carbohydrates. And when he eats the notion of dogon, of grains, of cereals, of complex carbohydrates, it stimulates his ability to think, but not to think in a cogent way, and an awareness, like das. He's aware that that man is his father. He's aware of his mother right away. He lactates and nurses from his mother. The child doesn't even have an awareness. But the father doesn't do those things. And when he's toyim tam dogon, he's suddenly able to identify his father to the point that he singles this man out from the others and he says, Papa, Father. So Dogon, grain, is related to attitude. Then the Alta Rebbe says, there is in that very same place in the Gemara, the Gemara brings an argument, a discussion as to what was the fruit from the original tree of knowledge. What kind of fruit was it? Here's a spoiler. It was not an apple. Definitely not an apple. There are a bunch of opinions it wasn't an apple. The most surprising opinion is that it was chita, that it was wheat, but wheats don't grow on a tree. Wheat isn't a tree. I mean, it's so confusing. Why would we even have such a supposition that the Eitz Hadas was a chita, was wheat? The Gemara clearly seems to understand that Adam Harishan, Adam's, Adam and Eve's awareness, awareness of their nakedness, awareness of the difference between good and evil, selfless and selfish, began after they tasted that fruit. And if we have to say that that fruit is a chita, it's in perfect corollary with the words of the Gemara. This is how the first human beings were stimulated intellectually to have an attitude. The way they view things, it changed their perspective forever. A child's perspective is brought into sharp focus to the point that the child can recognize and say, Dada, when he eats wheat. And this, the Alta Rebbe says, is the meaning of a mincha. So look, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just being, you know, living dangerously. But I'm thinking to myself, maybe, maybe, this is what the Chatam Sofer means. Is, doesn't it sound right? Betochen is an attitude. When you change your attitude, and that's a sacrifice. It's a korban. It's big stuff. When you change your attitude in life, you don't say, I know things are going to be miserable. The cup is half empty and tomorrow, tomorrow will be empty altogether. I'm riddled with anxiety, with worries. I'm not going to worry. I am not worrying. HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises I'm going to have what I need. It's going to come together. If I need it, I will have it. Because Hashem promises it. So it has to be that way. If you can toil with yourself to change your attitude, you've just brought a korban. When you bring a korban, my friends, that's the code. That's the key. 
you have now succeeded in unlocking HaKadosh Baruch Hu's brachas. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this betachan thing, definitely not easy because korbanot do not represent anything simple, if you will, in our life. However, the notion of a korban can and apparently does bring us the most wonderful of blessings. And I want to finish by taking this even a little further. You know, there are, uh, there's manuscripts that we discovered after the Rebbe's terrestrial passing, after Gimel Tamas. Notes that the Rebbe jotted down for himself. Fascinating notes. Some of them are speeches or sermons that he gave, some that he never shared. Some were personal notes. And all of it's printed. It's called the Rishimus. And in the 13th booklet of the Rishimus, there's... There's a speech that the Rebbe was planning to give for an event for yeshiva students. It was an event that was related to the study of Mishnah and the study of Gemara. And the Rebbe was going to speak. He was going to speak. It's, um, it's 1942, and he makes these notes for himself. And in the notes, the Rebbe interprets the mystical meaning of a korban. So he says, so what is the mincha? What is the meal offering? And he notes the difference between a Kohen's meal offering and a regular Jew's meal offering. The Kohen's meal offering is entirely consumed on the Mizbech and fire. The regular, ordinary Jew's meal offering, just a fistful is consumed in fire and the rest is eaten by the Kohen. What is this? What does it represent? And the Rebbe said that the koimitz, that's nikrav, that the whole notion of wheat, if you will, or the concept of flour, represents the idea of making a living. A person's needs. There's an expression that's found in the third chapter of Masechet Avot. It says, im ein kemach. <laughs> in Torah. If there's no flour, there's no Torah. Which means somebody's got to pay the bills. It's like saying, no gas, no car. So this represents sustenance. Kemach represents sustenance in the proverbial breadbasket of sustenance that people need. You know, a full pantry, so to speak. And it represents then the notion of, of doing what it takes to provide for your family, which, you know, in antiquity was... In a, Farming for most of Am Yisrael, we were farmers. We worked the land of Israel. So a regular person is expected to toil out in the fields all day long. But he first must take a little bit of that proverbial flower, that time, and he has to dedicate it to Hashem. That's the comets, that's the fistful of flour, that's your morning prayers and Torah study. And when you set aside a small portion of your day and you kindle it with the fiery enthusiasm and passionate engagement in spiritual pursuit, it elevates the rest of your flower, the rest of your dough. Have you hear the expression? You've got to make a lot of dough. It's going to cost you a lot of dough. It's a euphemism. That's what we're talking about here. The Kohen's job is to be in the Beit HaMikdash. He kindles all of his materialism with holy zeal and enthusiasm and passion, the fire of the Mizbech, as it were. But the regular Ben, ben Ubat Yisrael, he's out there in the real world. So 
the regular member of Am Yisrael has to be able to dedicate a small portion of the time we spend involved in material pursuit, and that has a very interesting way of permeating and elevating the rest of our time. In other words, the dough doesn't only represent attitude. In the way the Rebbe frames it here, it represents the notion of livelihood, sustenance, making a living. So, when the Chatam Sofer says that betochen is a korban mincha, it means that having faith that Hashem will give us our sustenance, that is the korban mincha. And that earns us our daily bread. In closing, I want to share with you a pithy comment, which is found in the Rebbe's first printed work, the Hayom Yom. An aphorism for every day of the year in the 16th day of Adarsheni. The aphorism goes like this. It is from the toil, the effort that one should be expending on trying to serve Hashem for a balesik, for a business person. Not for a rabbi, necessarily. Not for a person who's a yeshiva student. For a balesik. To awaken within oneself the faith and the trust. Gamur, absolute trust. And he who sustains and provides for all flesh. Hashem is going to give me what I need. I'm absolutely sure about it. So much so. That this person doesn't go to business anxiously. Will I succeed today? He goes joyously. As if the deal is already done. You hear these words? That's the avoida. It's an effort. A huge effort. In other words, to awaken within yourself a sense of absolute trust that Hashem is going to take care of you to the point that you're already happy as if you made the deposit. As if the deal is done. Imagine that. In the letter that this is lifted from, the previous Rebbe speaks about a person who, as a human being, has the ability to have his mind control his heart. Fears, anxieties, uncertainties. That's in the heart. The mind can control the heart. So besides the notion that a person who believes in Hashem doesn't worry. Why should I worry about these things? Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Whatever's not going to happen is not going to happen. My worrying will add nothing, as we mentioned yesterday in that little story with the Chedush Arim. But furthermore, it is written, That's what it says. Hashem will bless you in all that you do. In other words, I have to do my part, because according to Torah, I have to do my part. I need to go to work. I need to make the efforts, my best efforts, appropriate efforts. I need to also do my best to ensure that I'm being ethical in my business conduct, that I'm being honest, that I'm doing my commerce with full integrity, because the Torah demands that. How could you go and say, I'm earning Hashem's blessing by violating Hashem's will, by lying Stealing, cheating, misrepresenting. <laughs> you know that religious guy who ripped you off last week? Yeah, he's not so religious. Because a person who's observant of Torah would never do that. 
Oh, he may wear a black hat. Doesn't make him observant of Torah, at least not of that part of Torah. So he's picking and choosing. He chooses to eat food that has a kosher symbol, but to do business, that's not kosher. That's sad. It doesn't make him religious, though. At least not on the business level, which is a very important part of our religious devotion to Hashem. Hakoil alpidini hatoyda, everything by virtue of Torah law. Just like Torah law makes the food kosher, prepared, appropriate, or not. Same thing with business. It is our obligation to create a fitting receptacle, an appropriate envelope for Hashem's bracha. And the Friedrich Rebbe says that's on two counts. Number one, you want to be able to earn whatever you're earning honestly. And you want to be able to do it in a way which is plentiful. Number two, even after you earn the money, you want Hashem to bless you with the ability to spend it on good things, not doctor bills and speeding tickets. So just because you made the money doesn't mean it stays with you. And in fact, when the money isn't really supposed to be yours, not only will it beat a hasty retreat, it will take some of what was yours along with it. There is a fascinating letter from the Rebbe Maharash, with whom we began today's presentation with. And the Rebbe says, Rebbe Maharash writes, the Friedrich Rebbe says, I have this in my personal archives. Manuscript from my grandfather. And I will quote. With regard to sustenance, you are consumed with anxiety. He writes to this person. And you write, May ayin yavo ezri, Paraphrasing Psalm 121, from whence will my salvation come? The Rebbe Manash writes, The next Pasuk says, My help will come from God who created heaven and earth, that is to say, the Almighty Creator who is omnipotent, for whom anything is possible, who sustains the entirety of the galaxy of the universe, heaven and earth, and all of its hosts. And he can sustain you too. And therefore, the Rebbe Marash says, it is imperative that you get yourself used to thinking positively, to imagining, to imagining, to seeing in your mind's eye with the power of betochen that Hashem has already provided for you. And when you can do that in a manner that is so palpable that it filters into the range and realm of your emotion, we are actually happy and satisfied. You're at peace. You're immersed in a sea of tranquility. In doing so, and you don't just happy-go-lucky enjoy life. You take that joy, you take that positive energy, and you harness it. In an appropriate fashion, you study Torah with joy, you pray with joy, you help another person and uplift him with a smile and a joyous countenance. Then surely, the Parnassah, that's yours, will be swift in coming. And this, my dear friends, I would like to suggest to you today, must be what Rabbeinu Bechaya meant when he wrote those incredible words, Atoyelas, the benefit that you will receive in Torah if you do betochen right.
it necessarily means that you have menuchas nafshe. You're obligated to do that. Just as a servant is obligated to follow orders, you and I are obligated to trust Hashem. And when we trust Him like that, amazing things can happen. That's the thesis. <laughs> Turning that into a reality is a very difficult and challenging avodah. And that's what this series is going to be about as we will continue to analyze the importance, the profundity, the meaning, and ultimately finding the strategy to be able to implement this betachen so that we can all live with certainty by learning to trust Hashem. Thanks so much for joining. Have a beautiful day.